This is episode number 23 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. In this episode, I have a guest by the name of Nolan Irk. He actually lives nearby to me in California, and we're going to be talking about being a freelance developer, so doing consulting or doing contracting, things of that nature, not actually working for a particular organization, but working for yourself as a developer. You might think that I work on the Polyglot Developer and all of its channels full-time, but I actually do have a full-time day job. But even with that day job, I do have my own side hustle. So I do my own freelance stuff as well. So uh, this is the type of stuff that we're going to be hearing in this particular episode between me and Nolan. With that said, enjoy the show. Everyone, I'm with Nolan Irk, and we're going to be talking about what it's like to be a developer, consultant, or contractor in today's world. But before we get too ahead of ourselves and into the topic, I want to give Nolan a chance to introduce himself. So how are you doing, Nolan? I'm good, Nick. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Um, so why don't, you, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, Nolan? Sure. So I run South of Shasta Consulting. That's sort of my freelance slash consulting business. Uh, I've been doing that professionally or full-time for about 12 years. I should say I've been consulting full-time for 12 years, and I've been writing code professionally for about 22 years. So before you started um, your, your own consulting firm, so south of Shasta, right? Yes. Um, what kind of work were you doing before that? Uh, let's see. So immediately before that, I worked... Um, well, I guess I'll start at the beginning. It's a little more interesting that way. So my first jobs were writing code for video game companies. Uh, I worked at Maxis, where they make SimCity and The Sims in the edutainment division. So I did not work on SimCity, but I worked on like the kids' titles uh, for them for a couple of years. Uh, and then I transitioned over to LucasArts and worked on some of the things related to Star Wars Episode One. Um, after leaving that is when I switched and got into web development. I worked at a variety of dot-coms that are all now completely long gone. None of them are worth uh, anything. The stock options I was given are not worth the paper they're printed on. Uh, did my share of those for a while. Um, then I worked at a couple of uh, what I'll call brick-and-mortar companies, so not dot-coms. They didn't actually make software for a living. They were businesses that just needed a, a tech team of some sort. Uh, did my share of that for a while. And those were probably the two worst jobs I ever had professionally. Um, at one of them, uh, I really, really didn't fit in there. I just felt like this is not a good match. Had to talk myself away from punching my boss a couple of times. It just wasn't a right fit. Uh, the other place I worked at, it was a very very much a larger company and um, a little more corporate than I uh, typically enjoy. And they didn't use these words, but one day they basically said, you're never going to get a raise. You're never going to get a promotion. You'll have the same job you have now until you retire if you want, but that's all you'll do. We'll give you a 1% cost of living increase every year. And that's going to be just the way you do your career here. And I thought uh, this, um, this company was a, a credit union. And I thought if I do that, for too many more years, my resume will look like someone that can only work at a credit union. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I had a few options in front of me to start doing sort of uh, consulting work for another startup, uh, made the jump over to do that. And when that startup ended up uh, wrapping up their project a little prematurely, 
by then I'd been working at home by myself for a couple of years. And I thought this is a much better fit for me. I'm working on a small team, seeing the results of my work, making a difference a little bit more directly. Maybe I can keep doing this for a living. So I put out some feelers uh, to different colleagues I had and said, hey, I think I'm, I'm thinking about doing the freelance consultant thing for a while. If you know of anyone who needs a hand with a project, please keep me in mind. I was very fortunate that a couple of people wrote back and said, yes, we need someone that can do uh, some .NET and ColdFusion development on a project over here. I said, great, sign me up. Another client or uh, another colleague wrote back and said, um, I deal with training companies and we need people to teach bootcamp classes on like how to program JavaScript and how to do Java or uh, Flex was one of the things I taught at the time, different, um, different technologies. So I jumped on that and, and learned how to teach classes as well. And that was about 12 years ago. And here I am. So, so I have some questions to kind of just really gauge your history before we get into the, the core material. Um, sure. So you said that when you were working at the credit union and, and this other brick and mortar, you were doing web development. And yes. when you were working in the game industry, what kind of development were you doing in there? Uh, the game industry was mostly, so I was a tools programmer. So the languages I used were C and C++ and a, um, a handful of different scripting languages, either things that were basically invented by the game company themselves or uh, there was another tool I used a lot called Install Shield that basically wrote the, we used that for writing the autoplay scripts. So when you put a, a CD or a DVD in the drive, it knows how to copy the appropriate files to the right spots on your hard drive. And it knows how to turn on different options for your video card and uh, set up set yeah, up I, the game so it runs. Um, I, I feel so, like I remember that from like the Windows 2000 days, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was that. So some combination of those tools, depending on what the project was. And when you started transitioning into kind of your own freelance kind of gig, uh, you focused primarily on the Adobe products. You said Flex and Cold Fusion? Um, not intentionally, but yes. I had It just worked out that when I first sent out the emailers to my, my contacts and said, hey, I'm looking for work, the first, um, first one of the first replies I got back was uh, from someone I knew that said, hey, we're, we're working on an app. Um, we have two apps actually that talk to each other. One of them is .NET. One of them is Cold Fusion. Do you know either of those? I said, yes, I, I know both of those. What do you need? And they explained it. I said, yeah, I could help you out with that. So I, um, I was offered a Cold Fusion Adobe thing out of the gate um, for half of that project. And then on the other side, the training thing, um, it wasn't entirely Adobe products, but that was a noticeable percentage of what I was asked to teach. Some of it was Adobe things like Cold Fusion or Flex. And then others were um, just other related web technologies. Like I, uh, I, one of my first classes I taught was called JavaScript for Programmers. So it was meant for people that have been writing code for a number of years, but most likely in some sort of an older technology like COBOL or uh, maybe C or something procedural or just something that's not web-based. And then I, I taught that. So. And this was about 12 years ago, right? Yes. So when JavaScript was kind of getting its footing back in the door from being uh, kind of crazy to now polished? Pretty much, yeah. That's about right. <laughs> yeah, I, re I remember those days. Uh, so I, I do want to dig deeper into into your story. Um, but before we do that, I, I've, I personally pass around some terms a lot when it comes to freelance. I pass around uh, contractor and consultant. Sometimes I interchange them. Sometimes I kind of treat them as the same do you consider these to be the same kind of thing or are they two different types of freelance? I guess they're, they're two different types of freelance would be my, my short answer on that. I think it depends on who you're talking to and what they need. Um, contractor to me means not to be too sort of blunt about it, but I need a warm body that knows how to write code using this particular stack just to plow through a bunch of hours and get some features done, get some bugs fixed. 
and that's it. So I would consider that more um, more of somebody who's writing a, the bulk of code, not necessarily providing a lot of architecture decisions um, and things of that that nature. Whereas consulting might be doing that and writing writing chunks of code, but also um, has a little bit more of a managerial role maybe, or a little bit more of an architecture role, help kind of see the forest for the trees, make sure the project is headed the right directions. The consultants might be more involved in the higher level meetings with the other, um, the other leaders on the project and that sort of thing. But just so that way I'm clear, they are both forms of, of freelance, right? Potentially. Yes, they are. They are both things you could potentially, you know, be paid to do by yourself. Sure. And you, you prefer the consulting side of things. Um, I do. Yes. I find uh, more often than not. Yes. But there are a number of projects where um, a a company will call me and they'll say, we need, we need help with this. And then after, in fact, I've got a client that emailed me today and said, we need help with an upcoming project. And they have enough people that are high level technical folks in their office that they don't really need a ton of high level architecture help from me and my team. What they need are people to understand that information and then get the coding done um, correctly in a more of an efficient manner than they're capable of. No, that, that so, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so, so you mentioned uh, in your story about um, doing the cold fusion and the flex stuff and even teaching these classes, but I'm sure that there were scenarios where uh, people didn't necessarily come find you. You had, you had to do some outreach. Um, so when you did that kind of outreach, assuming that you, that you truly did it, I'm just making stuff up here. Mm-hmm. Um, how's the competition like when, when you're trying to find work? Um, that's a good question. So yes, I, I do have to do outreach, uh, here and there. I've been really fortunate that a big percentage of my work so far has been, um, organic referrals. I'll do a project for one company. They like my name and they like, or they like the work I did and they pass my name on to somebody else. And then that company calls and says, Hey, we heard you worked for so-and-so doing a web app. Um, can you help us with the same thing? And then I'll, I've been very fortunate that people have passed my name around a lot to do that. Um, I do also do a fair amount of uh, reach outreach. I speak at tech meetups as often as I can. I run my own tech meetup, which helps with meeting people in the community. Uh, I also speak at conferences about four or five times a year. I blog as often as I can. I do whatever I can to just kind of sort of remind people who I am and what I do and where they can find me. And uh, so, that works so you, pretty well. You're building up your own brand so that way it, it's positive and, and people uh, you're, the, you're the first thing that comes to their mind, right? When they need something with that particular skill set. I hope so. That's the idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no that, that's great. Yeah. So you, you definitely don't want to, uh, just sit around and, and hope that, uh, people look at your, your college education, right. And, and, it's, and hope that's enough, right. Because it's yeah, probably exactly. never enough. Exactly. Especially these days, the web is moving so quickly. Um, I, I couldn't imagine there being a four-year degree program, in 2019 that actually has the things that most companies are looking for. Um, it's, there'll be some overlap. Like I think they still use Java and C++ for parts of those degrees. And JavaScript is probably on a lot of the curriculums, but like, I doubt a four-year university, I might be wrong, but I would, I doubt that a four-year university has a lot of things like the latest version of Vue.js and the latest React libraries as part of their curriculum. So. Yeah, that's um, probably a, a topic for, a, for another podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's been a while since I've, I've been in school, so I, I can't answer that. Uh, when, when you're finding, uh, opportunities or when people are finding you, um, how do you negotiate a fair rate? Um, that's a really good question. It, uh, so 
I don't have a fixed dollar amount. Some people do. Um, I have more of a range that I go with, and it depends on what the client needs, and that's where the rate will who the client is and what the client needs. That's what kind of um, I use as factors to decide. Okay, is it going to be this rate or should it be a little bit higher? Um, usually you kind of figure that out in the first couple of conversations with the client, they'll call and I won't immediately just do a project as soon as they email me. I'll they'll email and say, Hey, can you work on this app for us? I usually respond with, uh, yes, I'd like to know a little bit more about it. Why don't we do a phone call and kick around some you know details? And then during that conversation, we can usually figure out, okay, this is a lot of work. It's going to involve me and two or three other people. Um, I'm going to have to hire some help or it's going to be a lot of high level meetings with their vice presidents. I need to be compensated fairly for that. It's going to be a lot of um, strategic work I need to be on the ball for and that sort of thing. Um, whereas if it's like a smaller mom and pop design firm here in town that I know they don't have a whole lot of markup on what they're doing and the project uh, budget is much more tight. Um, I try to do what I can to help some of those clients out too. So, uh, so the way so I you try, you try to keep it fair then. I try to keep it fair. Yeah. I'm not really looking to squeeze every dime I possibly can out of everyone that walks in the door. I feel like that is, um, sometimes it'll work. It depends on, you know, if a giant, uh, investor firm with billions of dollars laying around calls you, then sure. You could probably raise your rate and get a decent, um, hourly rate out of them for a while. But as soon as they find somebody cheaper, if you're, if you're always gouging them, you know, with maximum dollar every time, as soon as someone find comes along that can do the same thing a little more cheaply, uh, you have that concern of they might, they might go that other route. Yeah, no, so, that makes sense. Yeah, so, I, fair. so I have a question then. So, and sure. I, I could be, I could be throwing out uh, incorrect terminology, but I think, I think in our industry, um, there's a lot of what's called imposter syndrome, right? Where, totally. where you're never thinking you're good enough. How, what, how do you prevent yourself from, from creating a rate that is too low? Um, so the too low thing is, um, the way I did it was, uh, one of the things I, was fortunate enough to do when I first started my consulting business was I happened, I was referred to a, um, sorry, I'm talking real in, uh, in total gibberish today. <laughs> I was um, recommended a book called The Business Side of Creativity. And it's a book about running your own freelance business. The content in that book is meant for people that do graphic design for a living. So all of the examples are about things like writing brochures and drawing posters. But if you pull that out and replace it with building websites and mobile apps, all of the information makes the exact same sense. And one of the things I discuss in that book is how do you set your hourly rate? And they go over the logistics of, here's what you have to do when you run your own shop. You have to pay your own unemployment and your own health insurance and your own taxes. And you have to set money aside for this and that. And realize that in an eight-hour day, not all eight hours are going to be billable time um, more often than not. You'll have some days where, yes, you, you work an eight-hour day, you get paid for eight hours. But there's going to be a lot of days where um, there's a delivery at the front door and you have to sign for the package. And then you have three calls from potential new clients that want to talk to you about a web app. And that's just keeping the business running. Or you have to do payroll um, once a month or get your invoices out to your clients. That's all unbillable time. So the book was really good in discussing all of these things and helping you figure out, so given that, here's what you should do to set your hourly rates. And that helped come up with a good range on, okay, here's where I should start at as far as some number per hour goes. Um, and then one of the problems I think a lot of people, myself included, run into when they come up with that rate is feeling confident in 
standing behind that dollar amount when a potential client calls and says, Oh man, can you, can you do any lower? I've got, you know, you know, can you, we've, I've got a whole bunch of projects coming up. Can you cut me a break on this one? And I'll, I'll pay your full rate for the next two websites we have later. Or they'll say things like, well, what's your discounted rate? I can find somebody in some other country for half that. Um, and the book is really good at kind of going through all of those different scenarios and helping to come up with more or less the correct answers on, on what to do. So, um, so you definitely yeah, recommend I, that anyone pick up that book. Yeah. Then. I highly recommend that book. Everyone I know that talks about wanting to become a freelancer, that's one of the first things to tell them is go check out the business side of creativity and read that when you first get started. That helped get rid of not all of the imposter syndrome for me because it does still creep up here and there. Um, but that was a big sigh of relief reading that book. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I don't think you mentioned this, but when you're typically negotiating a rate, are you are you talking about it from an hourly perspective or a project-based perspective? It depends on who I'm talking to and what the project is. Um, often clients will call with an idea for an app or a website or whatever, and they'll want to know how much is it going to cost to do this. And um, I usually tell them, well, we have to do some discovery first to figure out what it is you need built. And we'll go through that process. Um, if they need more than a couple of minutes of my time on the phone, if they actually need me to help them do the discovery, say I, I need to go to your office for four or five hours and help you write down the specs on what it is you need built, then that's a, an hourly rate. I would tell them like, let's do a four-hour discovery meeting. I'll come to you. Let's grab lunch, lock the door, and hole up in a room and spec out what it is you need built. We'll block off four hours for that. Here's my hourly rate to do that work, and we'll do that, and then come up with the spec for it. So assuming I don't have to help them put together the spec, the client already knows what they want. They'll hand it over and myself and my team will look at it and come up with um, usually a range. Uh, a range I find is the most fair. Um, we'll break the project down into tasks and say, okay, your entire website, for instance, is these nine tasks. The first one is going to take between 10 and 15 hours. So here's our estimate on that. And we'll, you know, the second task will take between 20 and 25 hours. And we'll break it down that way. And then give them um, some sort of range, typically, like, oh, this will take between five and seven grand. Um, and if they don't want to range, then I'll just do the average maybe and say, all right, it'll be six grand and then see what they say on on that. Um, usually, though, in the paperwork that I set up for the project, what I'll also tell the client is this flat bid, fixed bid amount is um, only usable if all of the details in the project are correct and complete. And if we get working on the project and we find out that the requirements you signed off on are not complete and we have to change directions for some reason, then at that point, we're going to switch gears and make it time and materials from then on. And I'll just bill you for every hour we spend on the project. Um, clients don't always like that out of the gate because they want to know the flat amount, how much is this going to cost. But I find that having that time and materials clause in there is the only way to keep everything fair and to keep me from going bankrupt. Because clients yeah, might, you know, they might have incorrect requirements and not even realize it. And what I told them was going to be two weeks worth of work turns out to be six months worth of work. Yeah, I was going to ask that same question. How do you stop them? And, and it's not necessarily that they're trying to take advantage of you, but just that they don't have all of their crap together. <laughs> yeah, they don't know. And yeah, so we have to have some uh, safety net in there to help do that. And then I find that that's really good too. And when we do switch to an hourly rate, everyone feels that proverbial clock is ticking sensation and they're more um more apropos to 
jump on helping, you know, get your, getting you answers quickly and trying to find ways to solve problems quickly and efficiently. And it's amazing how when people have to be uh, charged for every single decision they make, how quickly they can divert thing, divert things off to version two of the app. And well, we can wait on that for six months. That doesn't have to be in the thing we're launching right now. Put that off and, oh, I can get you an answer on that right away. And they can jump on tasks. And sometimes that just is what we need to, to help keep everybody focused and keep the project moving along is that that ticking clock that's costing everyone money. So that's yeah, what no, we do. No, that makes sense. So I want to, so I want to ask a, um, a kind of different question from where we've been going so far. Okay. Um, so this one is, so when you're, when you're starting as a, as a consultant or even a contractor mm-hmm. uh, for a business, how often do you find yourself uh, just cleaning up projects because uh, maybe somebody at the company left or maybe they did a terrible job um, or anything? Versus, say, starting from something from scratch. Well, how uh, do you weigh the two? Pretty often, I think that is. It depends on the kind of project that comes in the door. The stuff that has historically shown up in my lap has been work where there was a previous team that um, was part of the project, and yeah, like you said, they're no longer around for whatever reason. So I'll come in, and usually, as part of that uh, project, we'll do a first phase of discovery, like. Okay, before we come in here and write the code that you're you're asking us to write to add the new features, let's block off some chunk of time to see what we're dealing with. And we'll make a list of the any if we notice any problems, make a list of recommendations on things we should do first so that the task you really want to add to your app can get done uh, correctly without, you know, causing a bunch of security problems or other crash bugs or whatever. Um so yeah, it's pretty common that there's already work in there that somebody else uh that somebody else did. Sure. And have you ever have you ever found yourself in a scenario where you, where you started and then you looked at their code and then you said like life's too short and then just left because it was so terrible? Um, let's see. I have never I don't I don't think so. I don't think I've ever just completely said never mind your code is too bad and bailed. <laughs> I have had to have some really difficult conversations with clients before though. Um one in particular comes to mind. There's a company I won't say the name of and they have a team of developers that have worked on this app for a long, long time. They've been employed there for, I think, over 10 years. But it became clear the more I talked to them that in those 10 plus years, nobody on the team was really spending any time keeping up on current technology and best practices. Got it. So they flew me out to their office. Um, I talked to them and said, okay, here's what we're going to do, you know. How do you want me to, to help? And I said, oh, we'd like you to, to start by writing this particular report in the app. I said, okay, I can do that. That'll be a good way to start looking at your data and see how things are organized. Do you use GitHub for version control or Bitbucket? And the response was, what's version control? <laughs> I said, okay, so let's start there and show you what the situation is and how that works. And the response was, oh, yeah, we transfer files to the server by FTP. So I had to back up and say, okay, here's the problem with doing FTP to your servers. It's a manual process. It's prone to error. You could actually have some security issues with that. And I was in their office for a week. And after about the first two days of me basically not being able to write code, when we were just responding with, yes, I could do that, but you realize you're adding another layer of security concerns to your app, or you realize the potential for rework here is really high, or here's another problem you're going to run to. Um, at one point, the owner of the company, it was a small outfit. I was dealing with the owner a lot. He, at one point, I think he got kind of frustrated and thought I was um, trying to pull the wool over his eyes. He actually called one of my competitors from the conference room while I was there, unknown to me, 
said, Nolan, can you come in here for a minute? And I sat down and he said, I've got, you know, this guy on the phone. I said, okay. And then he just put the dude on speakerphone and said, here's what we, and I knew who he, I knew the person he'd called. So that, that helped a little bit. Um, he said, here's what Nolan says we should do. We should use version control and we should be using, um, you know, this thing called Git and we should be using an MVC framework and we should be using responsive CSS and we should not have table-based HTML in our app anymore. What do you guys think? And I think he was expecting this other company to say, yeah, Nolan's trying to con you or rip you off or something. And uh, fortunately, the, the other the competitor replied honestly and said, well, we agree with about 90% of what Nolan told you. Um, Okay, good. And that, that kind of shut him up a little bit, but yeah. um, that was a big, long, weird project to start off on with like, I came really close at that point to being like, all right, you don't trust me. And you've got a big pile of really, really old code here. Yeah. I think I, I would have been offended and I'd probably, I would have probably cut ties at that point. No, I, I raised my rate on him though, when he called back for another project later in the year. Oh, well that works too. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it worked out. Um, more or less. Yeah. We've changed, uh, direction in what kind of stuff I do for them. I've decided, like, I think when we first started working together, he thought I was going to be mostly a code monkey. Sure. Nolan, write, write this report, fix this bug, that sort of thing. And after we did that project, and as that project kind of grew, just based on the type of questions he kept having and the type of questions his team had, it was clear that it's like, you know what, you guys don't really need me to be a developer writing code for you as much as you need me to help architect a modern plan for your team so they're not FTPing files to the production server manually and um, manually emailing source code back and forth because they don't know what GitHub is. Like, let's fix those problems for you. So instead, I sort of took a step back and said, you know what, the code stuff, farm that up to somebody else, or let's get a different team in place to do that. Let me help set up your GitHub server. Let's provide some training. Teach your team what version control is. Teach your team what model view controllers are. Show them, I think, Angular. Um, show them like Bootstrap CSS. You know, let's show you how to write a div tag instead of a table tag and get better benefits out of your code that way. And so that was kind of the direction we ended up going to um, make it more of a, a good match. Got it. Yeah. So I want to I want to take a turn here into the more logistical side of things of, of going freelance. Um, so first of all, and, and this uh, may be uh, the thing that comes to most people's minds when they when they first think about it is how are you tracking your time? So that way you, you're honest. Um, that's a good question. So there are lots of different tools out there that work pretty well. Um, QuickBooks has one. Freeagent.com has one. Uh, because of the type of hours I needed to track early on in my projects, where I had some that were fixed bids, some that were hourly, and some that were per day rates of teaching the bootcamp classes, um, at the time, I couldn't find an app that did all of the things I needed it to do, and provided all of the different billing options that my clients were asking for. Some wanted net seven invoices. Some wanted net 30. Uh, I wanted payable upon receipt. They all kind of had different variances in them. And I looked around at the options. Granted, this was 12 years ago. Couldn't really find anything that worked well. Uh, so I ended up writing my own app to do it, partially to solve that problem and partially because there was technology at the time I wanted to have more experience building a real-world app with. So I just rolled my own solution for that. But present day, like FreshBooks works really well. Uh, QuickBooks works well. Um, there are a handful of other options. You could. There's different like desktop apps now that'll keep track of your time for you too. And are you are you managing several uh, projects at once, or are you doing? Are you committed to one project at a time? No, I mean I usually have a couple of different things going on at one time. Got it. 
Yeah. Um, and then do you like dedicate certain like certain sections of the day for for uh, one thing or do you uh, dedicate certain days of the week? It it varies a little bit based on the project. Uh, what I'm running into a lot lately is other business units at the different client offices um, have delays that are happening for for whatever reason. An employee quit, a project manager had to change directions, and then the vendor decided they wanted something else. And so what we thought was going to be a project that would get done early in the week had to be moved out. Um, so yeah, sometimes I'll block off days like, okay, today is going to be all for client A. And then um, that, that'll sometimes work. And other times um, I'll plan that. And then after a couple of emails are traded in the morning, we'll realize, oh, I can't actually make much project projects progress for you today. Let me switch gears and see what else I can work on then. And I'll juggle a couple of tasks around. Um, I've also got a team of other freelance consultants that do very similar work to what I do. And uh, they all coincidentally live in Europe. These are folks that I know from, we speak at the same conferences. And so I knew them from the conference circuit. And uh, that kind of works out well, because if I get to the end of my day and it's only at like four or five, 6 PM that I've been able to get the correct answers from a client that was expecting me to work on stuff all day on Thursday. Um, often I'm able to coordinate with my team in Europe and say, okay, here's what was supposed to get done today and it didn't quite get done. Can you wrap this up for me? And then it's sort of like the code fairy writes a bunch of code while you're sleeping and they solve some problems at night while I'm, um, you know, while I'm resting and then get things back on track that way. And then I do the same for them as well. They have projects in Europe and then I'll work on stuff during my business day while they're done. And um, some combination of those things usually helps get stuff back on track when it gets going haywire. Yeah, that's great that you have a, a team of guys that you work with, or or girls. Well, it doesn't matter. They're they're all uh, coincidentally guys right now. Um, <laughs> I've had I've had uh, women developers on the team before. Um, it just I coincidentally don't have any right now. No, that's fine. We won't get into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you you mentioned uh, as, in regards to the guy that put you on the spot. You were in the office. Are mm-hmm. you typically on site for these jobs, or are you working from home, or is it a mix? Usually, I'm at home or at wherever my office is. Um, but uh, yeah, usually at home, I've got that client was in Texas. So I flew out there for a week, a sort of a ramp up period to meet everyone, see what the um, code looked like, see what they were dealing with. It was just easier to be in the same room with uh, the rest of the team for a few days to start that off. Uh, I do have other clients that are local. So I'm in Sacramento um, and there are different firms here in town that I deal with and I'll show up to their office when it makes sense to do so and just um, borrow a desk from someone and you know, get a few things done there or borrow their conference room for the day and meet with whoever I need to meet with. Um, but usually, yeah, I'm here at my office. Got it. Got it. So in regards to freelance, I've often thought about just, just getting rid of my day job and doing uh, freelance full time. Um, two things that have kind of stopped me or that have put me into some kind of uh, skeptical state is one, um, are you ever worried about not finding enough work to be able to pay the bills? Yes. Yes, I'm I'm constantly worried about that. Um <clears throat> but to be fair, having the history I had too of working for so many dot coms that are now completely gone, um, that's been the way my employment history has just been for a long time now. So you've um, adapted. Yeah, kind of I'm just kind of used to always keeping an eye out for what what else is on the horizon or what you know, making sure there's another project in the queue, making sure I've done networking this quarter to potentially get new new things lined up um yes i'm constantly working on that but at the end of the day i'm i'm pretty sure you're confident that if if things were to go south um you could probably work for a company again right 
Yeah, I could. I don't think I'd like it as much as I like running my own shop. But yes, I, I'm confident enough in my resume now that I know that I won't starve. If if worse came to worse and all of the clients vanished for some reason, um, I, I could find a tech recruiter to help and I could put feelers out to jobs and I would be able to pay my bills. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. The second thing that has kind of deterred me is uh, when it comes to benefits, because when you're working for a company, you're you're getting all of these very affordable, well, hopefully very affordable benefits like like healthcare. Um, retirement, all things that are absolutely needed in the United States, maybe less needed uh, in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what what do you do about that? Uh, that's a good question. So for uh, I'm fortunate that my eyes are fine, so I don't need vision um, vision insurance right now. Although staring at a laptop for as many hours as I do, that will probably change at some point. Uh, for health insurance. There there are a variety of options out there. Uh, what I did was I happened to just pick a provider called them and said, hi, I've, I'm a sole proprietor. Here's what I need. Here's, uh, you know, what I, you know, here's different, you know, stuff about my medical history or whatever. Um, they said, okay, well, here's our different options for you. I looked at one that I could afford that looked like it would give me the coverage that would work for me. And I just went with it. And as far as picking a plan goes, that was a pretty straightforward process. They've got usually pretty decent information online or in a book or something you can uh, grab and it'll tell you, here's what your co-pays are going to be. Here's the things we will cover. Here's what we will not. And you just go with it. And then they take money out of your account every month and you're fine. The problem I ran into, not really a problem, just something to keep in mind, I guess, is all of the health insurance providers know that you have to have health insurance. And so the rate that I signed on for at the beginning went up every year. So just keep in mind that the health insurance cost is going to go up. But the nice thing about running your own shop is that's a tax write-off. So you just keep your receipts and keep those bank statements that show them taking money out of your account every month, and it counts towards your um, into your taxes. Uh, dental insurance is even worse. Um, there are health providers out there, depending on uh, where you live or your income, you might even be able to do like the Affordable Care Act kind of thing. Um, so there are ways to do that that have a reasonable shot at covering most of what you need. Dental insurance, I've yet to find anything at all that is even kind of good. Um, every plan I looked at that's worth anything assumes you have at least about a dozen employees. And so for sole proprietors, it's just a joke. I signed up for a couple of plans years ago, and they really only worked out to be um, things like, well, we'll pay for your first cleaning, and then everything else is out of your own pocket. Or you're basically just paying for your cleaning in advance, and then you pay for everything else out of it. It was like ridiculously bad dental insurance plans. Um, So that, that was a big challenge for a long time. What I found for the most part that would work okay is just remember to floss. And when you do have some horrible thing happen, like if you need a, a cavity filled or crack a tooth or whatever, find a credit card and just consider that your dental insurance plan and then just pay the credit card <laughs> off as soon as you can. That's so bad. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really bad. Everyone yells about how the health insurance industry is this great big scam system right now. And I really feel like we need to look at the dental insurance industry. It's so much worse for small businesses that only have one or two people. So when when you're when you're working and you're paying your medical or your dental or even contributing to your to your 401k are are you able to say that you're you're still making enough to pay your other bills um because those things I know that I look at my pay stub for for what my employer pays versus what I pay and assuming that you have to pay the full amount yourself because there is no employer in the middle that's a lot of money. Uh, yeah, it can definitely be a big chunk of cash every month out of your pocket. And I think that um, ties in nicely with what we talked about earlier about 
knowing how much of an hourly rate to charge to cover those bills. And so, yeah, you can't be a consultant full-time for a living and do this for 20 bucks an hour and live in the U.S. You're just, you're going to go broke real quick because, yeah, you have to pay, you know, even for someone who's moderately healthy and doesn't have anything um, super out of the ordinary they need, a health insurance premium can still cost you five or 600 bucks a month, no problem, without anything fancy. Um, so yeah, you need, that's just health insurance. That doesn't include rent. Um, often clients of mine that want a consultant to come on and do things, they will also ask that I have some sort of insurance coverage available so that um, we're all protected in case my laptop is stolen or in case there's a security breach somehow and there's a problem that happens, or if I'm just on site in their building and I fall and break my leg, they want to know that I'm not going to sue them. So there's insurance costs too that are involved in running your own shop that are not a thing you have to worry about when you're a regular employee. So yeah, you have to have a dollar, uh, an hourly rate or a big enough uh, quote on your project if it's fixed bid to cover those things. And that goes back into like some people have imposter syndrome about asking for an hourly rate, like, man, do I, do I ask for 50 bucks an hour? Like the book says maybe a hundred, should it be 150? And like, yeah, there are consultants out there that make, um, three digit dollar amounts per hour. I spoke to a gentleman yesterday that makes $250 an hour for his services. And that's not uncommon. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. So it sounds like though, even with all of these premiums and all of these potential downsides, it sounds like you still wouldn't have it any other way. You, you love being freelance, right? I, I do. Yeah, it just it's a good fit for me. I like making things and making a difference, and I like helping other people do those things too. Um, at my last couple of regular day jobs, there was a lot of political, um, political stuff happening, like junk between departments, where you just we can't do anything today because we have to wait for Department A to stop yelling at department B or such and such manager um, needs to sign off on that project. And he's not going to do that until his budget is approved for this other thing. Um, there's just a lot of kind of stuff getting in the way. And I, I like making things and making a difference. And so, yeah, for me, running my own consultant shop is a much better fit. I work longer hours and sometimes I sleep less, but overall I'm way happier. Yeah. Awesome. That, that's great to hear. Um, in, in an effort to bring this episode to a, a nice close, do you have any kinds of words of wisdom that you might want to give listeners? Maybe these are people who uh, are working a nine to five job as a developer, or even people who are fresh out of school and can't decide what they want to do. Sure. So the thing I usually run into is people ask like, how did, how did you start doing freelance work? I want to be a freelancer for a living too. And after talking to them for a few minutes, I can usually tell what they think freelancing or consulting means is I get to just write code. I think a lot of people hear freelancer and they have this vision in their head of I can wake up at noon and sit in front of my laptop in my pajamas and just write code all day. I don't have to talk to people. Projects will just fall from the sky and I'll be able to just write code. And especially in the technology world where um, stereotypically, a lot of developers are a little bit more on the antisocial side or not as communicative as other industries. Um, I feel like that's what a lot of people think freelancing is. And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Um, projects do not fall from the sky. If I am not constantly networking with people, I'll never know who needs something. And they won't remember who I am or to call my firm if, if a project comes up. Um, I am project management. I am customer support. I am 
sometimes the server admin, sometimes I'm PR, sometimes I'm just the liaison in the room that can help smooth over some weird stress point on the project to get things going. Uh, I have to send emails every day, every day, every day to clients, um, answering their questions, you know, putting out a fire, whatever the thing is that's going on. Uh, same thing, they'll call my phone a lot. Um, a lot of developers I know like to send emails that look very much like they were sent from an iPhone. They'll say things like, yes, I don't know. Yeah, I got that. None of the emails that get sent out to clients spending a lot of money look like that from me. They all are formatted like, hi, client name. Hope you're having a great day. Here's the info you're looking for. And I lay it all out and say, if you need anything else, let me know. Thanks. And sign my name. Um, developers historically don't don't do that quite as often as what I run into. So yeah. um, if you want to run your own shop and you want to kind of have a lot of different hats, freelancing and consulting work is a great way to get a lot of experience doing those sort of things real quickly. If you really just want to write code and you have to be honest with yourself about this, if that's what you think freelancing is and you just want to write code, I would say don't become a freelance consultant. Instead, call a big company like, I'm just going to pick a name like PG&E or Blue Shield or HealthNet or something like that where they have a bunch of people writing reports in a room and then just go be like a report writer and you'll be one of you know 50 people in that room writing different reports or writing different import scripts or whatever the things are there that they need a bunch of and at a company like that you can just write code five days a week and you'll have very minimal other stuff you have to do but consulting is not that thing yeah no, no that makes sense i i like writing code but i don't i don't want to do it like like you just described that doesn't doesn't sound that great um, but then everyone's different so yeah exactly um in terms of how can people get in touch with you so i mean people might uh might want to hire you after listening to this episode i don't know what, <laughs> That'd be great. what is the what is the best way to get in contact with you are you on twitter are you on uh social media uh email social media yeah so uh i run south of shasta consulting so my website is southofshasta.com uh people can also find me on twitter at south of shasta uh, let's see. There's not an Instagram. Um, I'm on LinkedIn just under Nolan Irk. Uh, there will soon be a South of Shasta thing on LinkedIn that's in the works for 2019, and I just haven't finished putting it together yet. And uh, they can also email me, nolan at southofshasta.com. That'll work too. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on this uh, particular podcast episode. I'm sure it's going to answer a lot of questions that people might have. I even learned some stuff as well, because as as I mentioned, I'm always on the fence on on if I should go full-time freelance or not. Um, so it's definitely a very beneficial episode, and I appreciate you being on, on the call. Good. I'm glad it was helpful. Thanks for having me. This is great information from Nolan when it comes to freelancing, stuff that everyone should should probably be aware of, whether or not you're doing nine to five uh, for some company or you're fresh out of school, uh, whatever it may be. If you're if you're thinking about starting as a freelancer, definitely consider some of the stuff that was discussed in this particular episode. I'd like to give a special shout out to DigitalOcean, who's the sponsor of the Polyglot Developer Podcast. In case you're unfamiliar with DigitalOcean, it's by far the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. DigitalOcean has a variety of products ranging from object storage to scalable compute services, all of which having a very affordable and predictable pricing model. In case you're unaware, the Polyglot developer is actually hosted on DigitalOcean, and it has been for several years now. If you'd like to give DigitalOcean a try and see why I like it so much, I actually have a promotional code to give out. It'll get you $100, which will actually get you quite far when it comes to the services that you can get. In your web browser, go ahead and navigate to do.co slash polyglot. 
and that will go ahead and get you the promotional value when you sign up. And again, that's $100, and that'll get you quite far. If you found this particular episode valuable, it would mean a lot to me if you went into iTunes or whichever podcast network that you used and left it a five-star rating, and if able, also leave it a review. So that way, other listeners who are interested in development can get an idea on why you enjoyed this particular episode or this show, um, so that way they might be interested in it as well. And that concludes episode number 23.